I was telling uh, someone before the service started, just something going on in our family that uh, is brings some emotion to uh, to us. My my wife is with her mom and dad today, and uh, today is my father-in-law's last day to teach Sunday school there at the Tyro Christian Church. Uh, he's 87 years old. He has been teaching Sunday school for 55 years. And uh, he is a great teacher of God's Word. And it's, it's sad to me to think that, that he's come to this point. He's feeling like he's not remembering things like he needs to to uh, teach God's Word. But he has been a, a very special servant of God in that role, and uh, we're thankful for him. I was talking to my kids yesterday just through text and saying what a legacy he has left uh, to you, uh, his grandkids. So Cindy is there. She's emotional today. I'm emotional for her and for my father-in-law and thankful for him. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for just the opportunity to teach your word and preach your word. Thank you for my father-in-law, Bud Betts, who has taught Sunday school for so long. And uh, just bless him with, with many more years of, though he will be in a different role, Lord, may he have good years of, of helping whoever's teaching that class and just sharing his insight. Lord, bless our time here today as we look into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Keep in mind, Jesus has just finished his Sermon on the Mount. I want to read to you from Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, the response of his listeners after he had finished preaching. And it simply says this, The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. Now, we've talked about that word amazed before. It means to be astonished to be shocked, to be struck out of themselves. In other words, these people, when they listened to Jesus preach and he's wrapped up his sermon, they went away shaking their heads and they're talking to one another saying, we have never heard anything like that before. You could say it this way. They were blown away by Jesus's teaching. I find it interesting before this day is over, Jesus is going to be blown away about something. He himself is going to be amazed. And I think that is worth noting. The creator and Lord of the universe is, is going to be blown away about something. Now think with me for a moment what he has seen and experienced prior to this point. He has had his hand in creation. He has spoken and the worlds have come into existence. The galaxies, the sun, the moon, the stars. He has said, let there be light and there was light. He has formed the mountains. 
He has created the oceans and he has given a boundary for them. He has created the fish and the birds and the vegetation. He has taken the dust of the earth into his hands and he has formed man and he has breathed into him the breath of life. Now with all of that as a part of his experience, what possibly on this particular day could amaze him so much? What could incite such enthusiasm from the one who has seen it all and done it all? Well, the scripture that we're going to look at today is going to answer those questions for us. I want to read to you from Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. When Jesus had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people... He went to Capernaum. I will mention to you that Capernaum was located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fairly good-sized town, uh, around 2,500 people, according to my reading this last week. It had become the headquarters for Jesus' ministry ever since the people in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth had rejected him. And you may remember, too, that Capernaum was also the hometown of several of his disciples, Peter and Andrew, and James and John specifically. Let me read to you verse 2 through verse 5 of chapter 7 of Luke. And, And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now, there are several things in this passage that I want to point out to you about this Roman centurion. We are not given his name. But he is the central figure in this particular story next to Jesus. A centurion was an officer in the Roman army. He would oversee 100 men. Something else I learned this week as well. A centurion was one who would come into the, into the army from the bottom and he would work his way up. In other words, he came in at entry level and by his good conduct, And by his knowledge and his hard work and his dependability, he would be promoted towards this position of being a centurion. It's interesting, too, that nearly every centurion that we are introduced to in Scripture is presented to us in a positive light. We have this fella from Luke chapter 7. We'll talk more about him as the morning goes on. There was also, you remember, the centurion who was at the foot of the cross of Jesus as he was being crucified. That centurion confessed his faith over that period of of six hours that Jesus was hanging on the cross. At the end of that time, he confessed his faith saying, truly this was the Son of God. Then you may remember another centurion, Acts chapter 10, Cornelius. He is one who comes to faith along with his whole household. They were baptized into Jesus. They were actually some of the very first converts to Christianity who were Gentile people. 
As you read through the book of Acts, there's three more centurions that you are introduced to. Each of them are portrayed in a very commendable manner. This particular centurion in Luke chapter 7 seems to have a compassionate heart towards his slave who is sick. In fact, if you look at the original text and you look also at Matthew's account of this story, it almost seems like this this slave is more than a slave to the centurion. It makes you wonder if he's an adopted son. At the very least, he is a young boy whom the centurion cherishes. In so many instances, a slave in the first century was just treated like a piece of property, but not this case. This slave was highly valued by the centurion, according to verse 2. He's loved. His life is precious to the centurion. Unfortunately, though, this slave's life is hanging in the balances. He's sick and about to die, according to verse 2. Matthew's account says that the boy is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. It makes you wonder if he's had an accident. It's obvious if something isn't done for this boy, he's going to die. So the centurion decides to intervene. He hears about Jesus... And so he sends some Jewish elders to go in his behalf to Jesus to to ask him if he can save the boy. And there are a couple of things here that I want to ask you. One would be this. Have you thought about where the centurion might have heard about Jesus? Well, obviously, the, the... The message of Jesus and what he's doing and the miracles that he's performing is is widespread. That kind of message just, it flies across the the land and, and through people. And people are talking about that. But I'm thinking that possibly there is a particular source that this centurion has talked to. At least he's familiar with the story. Do you remember the second miracle of Jesus In John chapter 4, you can read about it. A nobleman who lived in Capernaum had a son who was about to die. And he sent for Jesus. He went to ask Jesus to come and, and, and would you heal my son? And Jesus, he didn't actually come to Capernaum, but he spoke the word. He said, go your way. Your son lives. John chapter 4 verse 50 says, The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he started off. Verses 51 through 53 says, And as he was now going down, his slaves met him saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said, therefore, to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household. Now, you know that story spread all across Capernaum. And though Capernaum had 2,500 people in its its town, that, that story spread from one corner to the next, I'm sure. And so, a year later, 
When this centurion slave was sickened to death, it's not so surprising that the centurion thinks of Jesus and maybe he's thinking, I wonder if he would do the same thing for me and my slave and my son. There's something else that I want to ask you about what we've read. What Jewish elders have you read about so far that would go as a representative of a Gentile Roman officer? I mean, this is so unusual, and it points to the fact that this centurion must have been a very special guy. Normally, the Jewish elders would have scoffed at such an idea. But here they are going to Jesus in behalf of this Gentile. Why would they do that? Because he had been such a humanitarian towards them. He loves our nation, they said to Jesus. And he had, had built for us our synagogue. You see, this centurion had forked over some bucks for, this, for these Jewish people. He was very generous towards them. I read about a pastor recently who received a phone call from the IRS. The IRS was inquiring about a certain person in the pastor's congregation that, according to his tax return, had made a sizable contribution to the church. The IRS was asking the pastor if he could verify that that was true. The pastor said, well, how much did he say that he gave to the church? person from the IRS says, $25,000. There was a long pause by the pastor. He then said, I'll tell you what, call me back tomorrow, and I'm sure that it will be true. <laughs> you see, with the centurion, it wasn't just talk. It was fact. He had given money to the Jewish community, and they had a synagogue to show for it. He was a very special person to the Jewish elders and to the whole town. They went to Jesus to plead for him to come and heal the centurion slave. Let me read to you verses 6 through 10. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Did you note verse 9? It says that Jesus marveled at the man. The NIV says he was amazed at him. 
It's the same word that we saw over in Matthew 7, 28, where it says that the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching. In this case, Jesus was amazed at this man's faith. He marveled at his faith. This man's faith was a head-turner for Jesus. He looked, and then he looked again. And in his spirit, I'm thinking that he's saying, wow. This guy's got such a strong faith. I've not seen faith like this with anyone in all of Israel. It reminds me of the woman over in Matthew chapter 15. If you've been reading the text that I've been giving to you uh, in the bulletin for the next week's sermon, you would have read this story from Matthew 15 this last week. That particular story happened later in Jesus's ministry, but it's pretty similar to the story that we're looking at today. She too was a non-Jew. And she has a daughter who's demon-possessed. And she comes to Jesus and she's asking Jesus to heal her daughter of this demon possession. And at first, Jesus declines. But this woman will not take no for an answer. She keeps on pleading with Jesus in behalf of her daughter. And everything that Jesus says to her, she has an answer for him. And finally, he decides to give to her that healing. And he says this, O woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. And he healed her daughter at once, the scripture says. My point is, Jesus was moved by people's great faith. And you know what? The opposite is true, too. Jesus was moved by people's lack of faith. Let me read to you from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered, there it is, he wondered at their unbelief. The NIV says that he was amazed at their lack of faith. He's shaking his head at these people. Where is your faith? And so in this case, the people of Nazareth, he's shaking his head in disappointment at them. But with the centurion in Luke chapter 7, he's shaking his head with them, with this fellow. He looks at him and then he looks again and he says, I haven't seen such great faith with anyone in Israel as what I see in this man. Makes me wonder what he's saying about your faith and my faith. Would it be along the lines of what he said about the centurion's faith? 
Or would it be more along the lines of what he has said about the people of Nazareth's faith? For a few moments, I want us to examine this centurion's faith and see what we can learn from it. What was it about this man's faith that thrilled the heart of Jesus so much? First of all, he had no doubts. He believed that Jesus could speak the word and his slave would be healed. In fact, he believed that Jesus could speak the word from a distance. First, he sent a delegation to Jesus to ask him to heal his son. The delegation of Jewish leaders goes to Jesus and they plead with him to come to where the slave is at and bring healing to him. And so Jesus decides to go with them. But as they are going, as they're getting nearer to the centurion's home, the centurion sends a second delegation out towards Jesus. And they say this, you don't even have to come to my home. Just speak the word and my son will be healed. That's what I would call long distance healing. The centurion had no doubts. I wonder how many times we pray about something, but in the back of our mind, we're doubting that God is going to answer our prayer. <laughs> is, that, is that ever true of you? You pray about something, but you have doubts in the back of your mind that the prayer is not going to be answered. Lord, would you please heal my loved one? But in the back of our mind, we're thinking, I, I really don't think he's going to. Or we're praying, God, would you bring salvation to my dad? Would you, would you convict him of his sin? But in the back of our mind, we're saying, you know, that old guy, he is never going to change. Or we're saying something like this. God, would you save my marriage? Would you please work a miracle in my spouse's heart? And then we turn to our friend and we say, my husband will never change. My wife will never soften her heart. You see, I think it's too often that we're speaking out of both sides of our mouth. We're praying to God and we're asking him for a miracle, but then we doubt. And then we turn right around and we speak those doubts to someone else. Or, or we say them to ourselves or, or we say them to God. There are a couple of passages that come to my mind about this subject of doubts. Let me read them to you. Matthew chapter 21, verses 21 and 22. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. I mean, did Jesus really mean what he said there? Some might say, well, I doubt it. <laughs> but I think he did mean what he said. Our doubts get in the way. Let me read to you James chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. 
But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, our doubts hinder our prayers. I'll tell you somebody that I can clearly identify with when it comes to the subject of doubting. Do you remember the father in Mark chapter 9 whose son was demon-possessed? He comes to Jesus. He's asking Jesus to heal his son. But the way that he asks him, Jesus can tell that he has some doubts. The man said this, "If, If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Do you remember Jesus' response? Verse 23, he said, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And the man answered Jesus then so honestly and so sincerely, he said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Do you ever feel that way? As you're praying to God and you're asking him to to give you a blessing, you're asking him for a healing, you're asking him for this prayer to be answered. And I, I totally identify with this guy. I do believe, Lord, help my unbelief. The centurion had no doubts that Jesus could heal his slave. And Jesus was marveling at his faith, and he was moved to action. A second point about this centurion's faith, he was willing to ask something big of Jesus. This was was a great demonstration of faith. He was asking Jesus to heal his dying servant, and he said this, you just speak the word, and I know that my servant will be healed. This was a big request of Jesus. Well, does that mean that we shouldn't be asking Jesus about smaller things? Absolutely not. Anything that is important to us is important to Jesus. But obviously, there are some requests that are much bigger than what other requests are. And I think Jesus was honored by this big request. He understood that this man believed that he could answer this request. I I guess you could say it this way. The size of our request tells God how big we think he is. I want to encourage you to ask big things of God. Ask him for miracles of healing. Pray for miracles of salvation. Every single one of us know of people whose hearts are hardened. And we might would say of that person, they'll never change. They'll never come to Christ. Don't believe that though. Don't give in to that kind of thinking. Ask of Jesus big request. Pray for the salvation of those whose hearts are hard and know that God has a way of bringing a person down and softening their heart. Pray for our country to come back to him. That's like asking for a mountain to be moved. But according to my Bible, God is in the business of moving mountains. 
Jesus loved the fact that this centurion was asking something big of him. And it thrilled his heart. He, he marveled at this fellow's faith. Number three, the centurion was humble and empty of himself. He said, I'm not worthy to even have you come into my house. This is the reason I sent a delegation to you. I am not worthy even to come before you. This man was totally poor in spirit, which is the beatitude that Jesus preached on just a little bit ago in his sermon on the Mount. He started his sermon off with that beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This man who is poor in spirit is one who can be blessed by God. And Jesus, who is God, is about to give to him an incredible blessing. And note, he did not come to Jesus with a an arrogant spirit. He didn't come saying, I'm a centurion of the most powerful army on the face of this earth. I am a person of such high rank that you should do what I'm asking you to do. No, that wasn't his spirit at all. He was totally empty of himself. He was destitute. He was bankrupt. He had no righteousness of his own to stand on. He is crying out for mercy to the one that he believes can give him mercy. And Jesus was merciful to him. Verse 10 says, And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. The word means whole. This slave who was about to die, he was on his deathbed, is now made well. As we conclude today, I want to ask you about your faith. And these questions are, are aimed towards me too. What about my faith? Is, is it more like the centurion's faith? Or is it more like those from Nazareth and their faith? Maybe today during the invitation time, some of you would want to come and you just kneel down somewhere here in the front and pray about your faith. Maybe you'd want to grab the, the hand of your wife and say, let's go. Let's go pray about our faith. Maybe you'd want to Grab a friend and say, hey, let's, let's pray together about our faith. I don't know about you, but for me, I need for my faith to grow stronger. I want it to be stronger. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the centurion of the Roman army whose faith turned the head of Jesus. Lord, help our faith to be strong. Help us to be growing in our faith. If there's anyone here today that has never put their faith in Jesus, they've never accepted him as Savior, I pray that you would just move in their spirit.
to understand that without Jesus, there is no hope. Help this church to have a faith that would be God-honoring. We pray this in Jesus' name.